Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, a rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Matt Smith, and joining me as always is Associate Professor Rhiannon Evans, a classicist from La Trobe University. This is our first episode in which we look at Season 1, Episode 1, The Stolen Eagle, originally broadcast on the 28th of September, 2005. Hello there, Rhiannon. Hi, Matt. How are you going? I'm fine, thanks. Are you ready for yet another Rome podcast with Matt Smith and Rhiannon Evans? <laughs> That's not the official title. No, you've got a much better title. I like raising standards. It's very punny. It's as close as you yes. can get to a Roman pun without knowing Latin. Um, I think they'd approve. And it's very appropriate for the first episode of uh, looking at HBO's Rome because they're talking about eagles and... Yeah, it's all about the standard. Yeah. Where is it going? Yeah. I should say at the outright that we'll be uh, looking an episode at a time at HBO's Rome and that they will be infrequent but not too infrequent, these episodes. We're not doing much during quarantine, are we? <laughs> <laughs> it kind of depends when we can get around to them, fitting them around yes. uh, working from home arrangements. And, uh, and, um, and I think we thought we'd just watch one and then record ourselves talking about it. But yeah, I think it's been a few days since we watched this. So we'll see what we can remember. Oh, no, that's that's quite good. It's been It's been a couple of days. I watched it on Monday. We're recording on Thursday. And yeah, I think people are looking forward to hearing uh, what we think about it and re-watching it with us. So hello, everybody who has recently watched season one, episode one of Rome called The Stolen Eagle. So I can't quite believe it was made 15 years ago. I know, I know. Did you watch this at the time when it was on TV and probably uh, nitpick yeah, it? Yeah, I must have done. Yeah? Yeah, because I only got the DVDs recently, so that's how I must have seen it, yeah. Okay. All right. And so let's get started. Um it starts off during the Gallic Wars, so towards the end of the Gallic Wars, actually, because we see um, quite quickly the main scene, I guess, that everybody knows of the Gallic Wars, which is Vercingetorix surrendering to Caesar. Um, but even before that, we get a battle scene with Pullo and Varinus to kind of establish those yeah. as essentially the main characters of the show, a bit Rosencrantz and Guildenstern wandering their way through Roman history. It's a very clever idea because they are characters from, well, not characters, they are soldiers who feature in Caesar's Gallic War and they're, you know, they're not high-born mm. or uh, very powerful so uh, military figures. But as often in Caesar's Gallic War, he gives focus to soldiers who are lower down and shows us how brave and important they can be. And these are two of them. They're actually named people in the Gallic Wars. So uh, shall we read out? I've got here the, the bit of the Caesar's Gallic War. It's book 544. Did you want to read that out or shall I? You, you tend to be better at reading these sort of things out. Are you actually reaching you for the Gallic Wars? I have I a Word document. <laughs> I'm actually going to read, if it's okay with you, the one from the Carolyn Hammond translation, just because it's a bit more modern than the go. one that we've told from the internet. Mm. Okay, here we go. In this legion, there were two centurions, both men of great courage and close to reaching senior rank. Their names were Titus Polo and Lucius Varanus. There was always a dispute going on between them as to which had precedence over the other, and every year they clashed in fierce rivalry over the most important posts. While the fighting at the defences was at its height, Pullo shouted, Why are you hesitating, Varanus? What chance are you waiting for of winning praise for your bravery? This day will decide the contest between us. With these words, he made his way outside the defences and launched an attack where the enemy ranks were densest. Nor indeed did Varanus remain within the rampart, but followed his rival for fear of what men would think of him. Then Pullo cast his spear against the enemy at close range and transfixed a Gaul who had run forward from the ranks. He was knocked, knocked senseless, so they covered him with their shields and altogether threw their weapons at Pullo, giving him no opportunity to withdraw. Pullo's shield was pierced and a dart was stuck in his sword belt, this knocked his sheath and hindered his attempt to draw his sword. 
While he was in difficulties, the enemy surrounded him. To the rescue came Varanus, his rival, who helped him out of trouble. Straight away the Gauls turned their attention from Pullo to Varanus, thinking the former had been killed by the dart. With his sword, Varanus fought at close quarters. He killed one man and drove the rest off a short way. But he pressed forward too eagerly, tripped and fell into a hollow. Now he was surrounded and Pullo came to his aid. They killed several Gauls and both returned safely within the defences to great acclaim. Thus fortune played with them both in their rivalry and struggle, so that despite their enmity, each helped and saved the other, and it was impossible to decide which should be considered the braver of the two. Mm -hmm. So that kind of was drawn out in the Rome TV series. There seems to be a rivalry between the two characters, and uh, Pullo does break rank and run into battle, and Varinus has to go and pull him out of trouble. So they, they kind of went with those sort of themes. But at the same time, that's all that we get from the Gallic War about those two characters. So they're, they're blank canvases to use. Well, I think they've changed the power dynamic as well because uh, Varanus has definitely got a higher rank. He does, he does. Caesar suggests that they're both struggling at around the same level and one might get higher than the other. But um, they've changed that presumably for dramatic reasons and so that Polo... Um, can be punished, and he is being punished for most of the first episode. I um, very much like the performance here by the actors, uh, Kevin McKidd and Ray Stevenson. I think they've been very well cast for the for the roles that they're playing. Um, very macho men, very brutish kind of thing, uh, which you'd expect, I guess, for a Roman soldier. So... Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wonder if um, people were meant to be quite shocked because Varanus is obviously the the much more conventional playing things by the line, and I, maybe we're meant to think that's why he's come higher up the ranks, at least in the the HBO Rome narrative. Mm. Um, but when it comes to you know, I'm getting ahead a little bit, but I hope that's okay. Uh, when it comes to him being asked how he would get information out of prisoners, he has no hesitation in saying, well, I crucify them until one of them speaks. And I mm. think because by that point, we've sort of, um, we we feel that Varanus is perhaps our lead through the story. That might be a bit shocking to people, but I think that would that is quite realistic that he's a hardened soldier. He's got, yes. a, you know, he's asked how you would accomplish something and that's what he would do. And he's pointed out as being a soldier uh, who I has a brain. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Which apparently is a rarity, according to Mark Antony. <laughs> yes. Then we quickly get the scene of Vercingetorix surrendering to Caesar, which uh, skips ahead from book five was our introduction to those two soldiers, but that they could have been doing anything in the intervening two years. So there's no reason why they couldn't have been doing this during book seven of the Gallic Wars. So anyway, book seven of the Gallic Wars is our next scene. Uh, with Vercingetorix yeah, so, surrendering to Caesar. So the book five that we I just read from is meant to be 50, is set in 54 BCE, but the narrative mm. of Rome is set in 52, so two years later. Mm. But as we'll see, there's a bit of playing around with timelines throughout. Uh, yeah, and the, the scene of Vercingetorix, the Gallic leader, throwing down his arms in front of Caesar is an iconic scene, partly because it ends the part of the Gallic Wars that Caesar writes at the end of book seven. Mm -hmm. And um, because it's there's a famous painting of it by Lionel Royer, there are other representations too, but that's the really iconic one. The iconic um, one is Asterix. That, yeah. Well, yeah, that's what's parodied by Asterix, <laughs> <laughs> that painting, um, when Vercingetorix throws the arms and they knock Caesar over mm. from memory. No, that he, would better. He throws them on his feet, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> Not at his feet, on his feet. But in, in this, it's probably a, a, a more realistic kind of strip naked, humiliated, kiss the eagle kind of thing. Yeah. This is It's a real subjugation of the Gaulish leader. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, you, the Asterix narrative is not going to get us to what, um, sorry, this is a spoiler, but uh, a few years ahead, Vercingetorix is going to be almost sacrificed at the triumph of Caesar, mm. presumably. Um, Asterix read by children. This does not happen. <laughs> <laughs> not exclusively by children. So, <laughs> um, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you need to cater to them. <laughs> Before you, Mercingetorix, son of Keltil, chieftain of the tribe of the Averni, commander of the rebel stronghold of Elysia, king of all the Gauls, 
What would you have of him? I've got here the um, text, and sorry, you've put your book away, possibly. Uh, Caesar's Gallic War, Book 7, Chapter 89. Let me just make it there. I don't know if you want me to read more out. This is this might be too much reading for people to handle. Uh, this one's a bit podcast. shorter. They know what to expect from us. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's, there's a paragraph... Um, in chapter 89, book seven of Vercingetorix, he called a council and argued that he'd undertaken this war, not in his own interests, but for the liberty of all. We don't get any of that there. Vercingetorix has already been taken captive. Mm. The outcome of that is they sent envoys to Caesar to discuss these options, and he ordered them to give up their weapons and bring out the ringleaders. Then he took his seat within the fortifications in front of his camp and the ringleaders were brought to him there. Vercingetorix was handed over and weapons were thrown down. And that's it. Yeah. And then Caesar has pe uh, the, the Gallic people swear allegiance. It keeps it very brief uh, mm. and doesn't tell us anything about what the outcome is going to be for Vercingetorix. No. But so, um, but Rome, so, the TV series, had a had a quite impressive and known painting to take inspiration from, and I guess a lot of leeway. But at that point as well, you get um, Gauls sold into slavery to a Briton by the sounds of the accent. Um, uh, so oh, I didn't pick up on that, but I'm sure you're right. I'm not an expert on uh, where the different accents are from in Britain, but it was definitely quite a, a wide British accent there. They're pretty much all British accents, though, aren't they? This is something we can discuss as we continue through the episodes, I think. Oh, but well, uh, yeah. a lot of these are sort of renowned Shakespearean actors. <laughs> so a lot of them have acted with the RSC. So yeah. they've gone for, I think particularly with the highborn Romans, they've gone for that idea that you you pick out these these actors who've been through that that sort of elite training and, and uh, are used to declaiming in that way mm. uh, to get that style of speaking. Although I don't know if this is the point to mention it, but I think that there is, for me, there's a bit of a weird mix of very colloquial expressions and then sometimes quite um, a sort of highfalutin language. Mm -hmm. So there's a bit of that go you to the forum you know, when you reverse the verb and the pronoun, it sounds uh, very, it sounds old fashioned, but it sounds very sort of high, high talk. Yes. Um, and then yeah. there's, um, I think you quoted somewhere. Oh, what, Mac Mark Antony striding into the tent saying, Brutus, me old cock, what are you doing here? <laughs> yeah, very uh, kind of using dialect words or talking in a colloquial way. And I don't know if that was deliberate. It, I'm not sure it entirely works for me, but people might have thoughts about that. I, I think you also uh, need to pay attention as to what characters are using this, what sort of language as well. So, you know, Mark Antony can, can use vulgarity like that and, you know, uh, Pullo will, um, but you know, I think it says something about the character who's saying it as well. So, uh, having said that, at, at this time, Caesar um, is gets a letter from Pompey saying that Pompey's wife, Caesar's daughter Julia, has died in childbirth, and we do get to see that scene, which was a, a very kind of touching and tearful scene for Pompey. Yes. And in contrast to a lot of the other marriages we see, which are very much made for uh, political reasons, Transactional, Pompey is yeah. shown as, as being uh, extremely fond of his wife uh, and devastated by her death, although he will be married again by the end of the episode. Uh, now, that's one of the uh, issues with um, the chronology being all wrong because that that did happen, but it had happened in 54, so the same year um, that we read from Caesar's Gallic Wars. So mm. that's when Julia had died in childbirth. Yeah. Uh, and it's represented here as happening at the same time as Caesar's finishing off the Gallic Wars in 52. Yeah, yeah. But then again... And, and I guess, again, for dramatic reasons. Exactly what I was going to say, the, yeah. That was meant to be one of the critical points in the alliance between Caesar and Pompey breaking apart. I'm going to call him Pompey. I know they call him Pompey, and we've had a question about this from a listener before um, about what the correct pronunciation is. So we tend to call him Pompey when we anglicize it, but mm. the Romans would have called him Pompeius with a U.S. at the end. So they've kind of gone for something in the middle here, which I have never heard before. That's okay. There's differences even between me and you. I, I keep saying Lucius Verinus and you're, you called him Lucius. So you're, you're hard yeah, seeing your way I around. Did. 
I called him Warrenus as well because that's the Latin pronunciation. And then I compromised and called him Vorenus when I was reading out. So I wasn't even consistent within that passage. Uh, but, yeah, but yeah, as I say, Julia's death is supposed to have been the breaking point for Caesar and Pompey. So it makes sense that if you're going to show that relationship mm. falling apart, which I think is a real strength of this, um, by the way, that we start off with uh, Varenus and Pullo and they're going to be our central characters. But we're also seeing this political alliance at the very highest level mm. being put under strain and dissolving really in this first episode. Uh, we then get a scene where Pompey uh, is given a message by a slave, and I can't even remember what the message was at the time. It was probably, you know, the senator going to meet or something like that. Uh, but it was most pointed uh, because it was telegraphing to us that the slave is Pompey's and has a tattoo behind his ear. And uh, I just wanted to give you a second to talk about the fact that the tattoo kind of thing was accurate. Slaves were marked with tattoos or markings or brandings or collars uh to say oh, collars yeah. yes oh my goodness i mean i suppose the tattoo is more permanent but the collar always seems shocking i wonder if we're going to see that i can't remember uh anyway the the tattoo yeah slaves could be tattooed i mean they were property so it was a marker of who owned them so mm. it's not surprising that pompey's name turns up on it and it as is written as pompeius there with his latin name um my impression is that this tended to happen as a punishment. So it might be more slaves who were liable to run away or something that was done to criminals. I think mm. we know of examples of it being done to Christians. Um, so, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Maybe he had been a runaway or maybe this is just being um, something that's transferred. In a way, it's a shorthand, isn't it, to telling us that he's Pompey's slave and that's how... Caesar kind of knows that Pompey's involved in a plot against him. Yeah, it wasn't on. smart to use a slave with your name tattooed on his head, <laughs> central to your scheming. You know, that's yeah, and and he's bald as well. You don't even have to shave his head to find this out. And, and he had the the eagle in his hands. <laughs> it's mm, just yeah, that's akin to yeah. to him to Pompey literally having the smoking gun in his hand at the end of the episode. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it makes it very clear, doesn't it? That yeah. Again, as I've already mentioned, it's the end of their relationship, their alliance, which, by the way, maybe I should mention is a, a historical um, a, a piece of history that they formed this alliance mm -hmm. along with a, a third person who's dead by this point. So we don't need to worry about him, Crassus. He died in, in 53. Yes. Uh, but yeah, we, we tend to call it the first triumvirate, uh, the first gathering of three men. And that was meant to hold Rome together because when we join the Roman Republic is really falling apart at this point and the whole of the 50s have been chaotic in Rome. So this triumvirate is meant to hold that together. Yeah. And by the way, one of the problems I do have, with, no, it's not a big problem, but <laughs> I, it's implied that Caesar is Pompey's co-consul at this point. We'll get to that. The, yes. We'll get okay. to that in the Senate Sorry, House. I'm no, no, no. Well, this let's is, let's walk. This is going to happen a lot when I get ahead mm. of Matt. No, no, no. It's, it's just happened. a little bit ahead because now we're going to walk through <laughs> Rome. We're going to walk through the farm with Tim and uh, the the horse trader, um, and give See, you. I would pronounce that Timon. I don't. I can't remember how they pronounce it in the series. Well, if it's going from the Lion King, the meerkat is named Timon, and it's spelled okay. the same. So let's just go with Timon until we hear it said otherwise. Timon of Athens, though the Shakespeare. <laughs> I'd say that's probably closer to it. But anyway, we'll see that it's Timon and he's walking through the farm of Rome. What did you think okay, of the city sorry. of Rome? I thought it was great. Yeah, I thought it looked amazing. And it's lovely to see it in colour because, of course, we do think of these as white buildings. But we know that they were painted and we know that there were, mm. especially later on, but maybe even at this point, coloured marbles used. Um I have to say it might have been slightly more glamorous, the forum in particular, than it was at this point because famously a few decades later we get uh, a kind of, uh, you know, a rebuilding of Rome. And By Augustus. Augustus, whom Octavian is going to become, that he found it made of brick and left it marble, then maybe it wouldn't have been quite this glamorous. But we do know that there were buildings like the um, the forum is lined sort of lined up by these two basilicas, these long, thin, colonnaded buildings. Yeah. Uh, they were there and they would have been fancy. Uh, the temples, of course, be, would have been, uh, if they were properly maintained, would have looked great. And the ones in the Forum are more likely to be maintained. 
I didn't get the impression that it showed us the the Senate House had recently been burned down at the beginning of 52 BCE at the funeral of uh, one of Caesar's, usually seen as Caesar's henchman, Clodius. Uh, the the public had got uh, kind of very passionate and annoyed and angry and had used his funeral pyre to burn down the Senate House, yeah. which is another sign that things are falling apart a bit at Rome. Uh, so I didn't get that kind of blank patch unless they had some hastily constructed thing there. But, you know, they're not dealing with that part of the history. So I guess that's understandable. Mm. Under the protection of Pompey Magnus and Julius Caesar, Senate sits tomorrow. Be aware. No disorder will be tolerated. And so now we get our first look at the narrator played by Ian McNeese. Uh, being very theatrical, giving a bit of a, a bridging, well, narration, really. He's there to give plot exposition, isn't he? He is. And I think it's a really interesting way of doing that rather than just having your traditional voiceover, which they put mm. on afterwards because they feel like, oh, people might not understand the history behind this. So they've actually made the exposition part of the scenario of being in the forum. It's a really clever way of providing what can be very boring exposition or just having scrolling words go up the screen, you know, in the year 52, blah, blah, blah. Such a Star Wars cop out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's iconic there, but I don't think it would work so well here. Although they did it in epic movies as well. That's where Star Wars stole it from. But I love the fact he is portraying a character or a form of a character who would have existed in Rome, sort of reading out Mm. the daily news. This is how people got to know about what was happening overseas or what the Senate was doing. Or if it's a state of emergency, basically, then they need somebody to come and announce it in the forum or in a public place. And of course, there is a speaker's platform to do that job. And he he's acting as an orator would in the ancient world. Um, we know that they were very melodramatic, full of gestures, using their hands and using particular kind of um, looks on their face. We know because we have manuals telling us how orators should perform. And it is regarded mm. as a performance. So what he's done there is actually quite realistic from what we know by the sounds of it. Yeah, absolutely. And we've got Cicero talks about this. And of course, Cicero was known to be a wonderful orator. And I'm actually Mm. surprised that we haven't yet had more of that with Cicero himself. We have to keep an eye on Cicero, see if we get some speechifying. But I think in the interim, Ian McNeese's character is providing that for us. Uh, And Quintilian, who wrote a, a hundred or so years later, but wrote a kind of a manual on how to do oratory has a whole section Mm. in book 11. It's more than 11 books long (laughs) Um, (laughs) on how you should, it starts off with how you should project the voice. Um, But then he talks about down to the minutiae, for example, he says, by far the greatest influence is exercised by the glance. So not even what you're doing Mm. with your hands and the rest of your body at this stage, but you know, what you're doing with your eyes. Do you have one eyebrow raised more than normal? And he talks about what actors do, and compares that to what an orator does. He actually mentions actors and how your eyes move. They become intent, indifferent, proud, fierce, mild or angry. I'm reading here from chapter 75 in book 11 of Quintilian's Institutio. It's called The Training on Oratory. So he talks about expression and how you get over contempt or derision or anger or censure. Um, And what you shouldn't do, don't protrude your lips too much. Don't open them with a sudden smack, he says. And then he goes on to the body. Your neck mustn't be too stiff. This is how you throw your arms around. All right, this is what's considered too much. And uh, but I think we'd consider it all too much. So I think he's doing a good job there, really (laughs) sort of doing the big gestures. It sounds like a a very thorough manual from the world's worst theatre critic. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, breaking it all down to the minutia of exactly how how the voice should be and how the body should be. And even down to, you know, which fingers you use for which gestures and which way they're pointing. That's pedantic. (laughs) (laughs) And we know, I think, that this this manual or certainly ancient works were consulted when they were Mm. working on uh, how the orator should perform. So they did their homework. Let's get on to the terrible treatment of women. (laughs) I'm going to actually use that segue. All right. So, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So uh, now we're introduced to Atia uh, humping away at Timon, Timon, and then having a bath. 
and being perved on. Anyway, what did you think? Well, look, I, as I think I wrote it to you at some point, I have nothing good to say about the treatment of women in HBO Row. I'm mm. sorry. It's um, an artier in particular whose reputation was uh, beyond doubt. She's known as somebody, uh, for example, Tacitus tells us that when she came into a room, people would kind of mind their language because she was known as chaste and pure in that way. Wow. So they've represented her as entirely the opposite of yeah. that because she is uh, kind of sexually voracious. She uses sex to get what she wants. She'll have sex with someone as low as a horse dealer just to get the horses that she wants to send to Caesar. Mm. Um she is extremely manipulative and all of that. We know very little about her. And what we know about her is that she was highly respected as uh, this kind of very correct and chaste Roman matron. So as I say, they've gone for the opposite. I read somewhere, and I don't know whether this is verified, that the writers were basing her on the character of Clodia, who is a contemporary Roman woman whose reputation was trashed by Cicero and she, what she was represented as a loose woman who mm. kind of give it to anyone um, and because we've got very negative representations of her. So, so they've obviously decided to do that with her and make her, I guess, what you'd call the soap opera bitch. That's what she seems to be so far. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's a term apparently that most soap operas have one, a female character who's manipulative. And I'm hostile. not arguing with any of this. So, um, <laughs> yeah, look, I think that's what they were aiming for. I think Polly Walker plays it very well. I've got... She's a great actor. I've got yeah. no complaints with... I'm just going to leave that line of thought there. Uh but yeah, I I thought that it was also the very easy way for them to go. They clearly want to show off some bits and they've gone, right, what female characters can we build up so that we can show off something? Yeah, anyway. Yeah. And it happens later in the, the episode too with uh, Octavia. Although Octavia, I think, is being set up as the opposite of her mother, mm. as a much more um, kind of rest restrained, respectable, contained um, I mean, she she wants to remain married to her first husband. She's being pushed around. So so I think they've set them up as opposites: the chaste woman and the uh, the kind of sexually transgressive one. Also, I will just say this at this point while we're on women, and this is not just about HBO Rome. It's about pretty much every representation of H of ancient Rome in film and often paintings too. The women don't have n nearly enough clothes on. Right, respectable Roman women wore. You couldn't see much of their bodies, their face and their hands. So they were covered over. And of course, in private, they might have done different things and, and all of that. But these women are never wearing enough clothes. So as extremely elite women, they would have been shunned if they went out like these women do. So just don't don't take that as accurate, please. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so uh, Atia gets her horse at a good price, I, I imagine. <laughs> Um, gives it to Octavian. Octavian's going to go to Gaul to present it to Caesar. I have nothing to add to that. It was beyond it's a very silly idea, but okay. Uh, yeah, he doesn't yeah. have nearly enough people going with him, does he? And also Octavian, what, we're in 52? Octavian, he's mm. only 11 years old at the most. Um, I did like in the scene there how... Um, he backhands a slave very casually. This is how he treats slaves. You put that on my foot. Uh, I think it was making a pointed uh, comment about the character of Octavian, who seems to look down on the lower ranks quite a lot. Um, but, yeah, it was just a nice little touch there. Um, well, nice It was, and I, I've got a couple of things to say to that. that I, I think that we're meant to look at him as a cruel character because of that, whereas, in fact, it probably was normalised for the Romans. I actually um, didn't look at him as a cruel character because I thought that that's how they would have reacted, probably, that slaves are property. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I wonder whether we are going to get characters who are less cruel to those lower in rank than them. It's always a, it's a fine line that they have to tread when mm. they're looking at, a society like ancient Rome, how much do you make the sympathetic characters like us? Mm. And how much does that mean that you've kind of destroyed any veracity uh, in terms of representing this society? I have a bit of a problem with uh, Octavian 
looking down on not slaves because slaves would have been looked down on, but um, treating sort of treating himself as an arist as a as a really elite aristocrat. Mm. His father was a new man, so there'd been nobody in his family who'd been a consul before. His mother comes from the same family as Caesar, so you know she has the very best uh, contacts within her family. But he takes at this point until he's adopted by Caesar. Sorry, another spoiler. He, um, <laughs> he takes his his uh, kind of rank in life from his father, which is still high, but it, he's not he's not from a patrician family. He's not from the very highest rank, which makes it all the more amazing that he does come to power. Okay, so now we should um, we should go to the Senate scene, and for those who have uh, a mental image of the Senate, this is pretty spot on. But then again, I, I think the mental image that we have of the Senate isn't necessarily accurate. But um, you've got the, the, the curved Senate, and it comes from a painting, doesn't it? The painting of the it, Catalan it conspiracy. Is, yeah, it's probably based on the Cesare Macari painting of uh, Catalan being pointed at by Cicero in the mm. Senate uh, while he's uh, being, you know, he's a disgraced character from slightly earlier in Roman history. Um, so this painting has really influenced the way that TV and film tends to represent the interior of the Senate House. In fact, we know the Senate could meet in lots of different places. They didn't have to meet in what they called the Curia, the Senate House in the Forum. And as I mentioned, that Senate House had been burnt down earlier in that year. So they would have been meeting somewhere else, yeah. maybe at the Theatre of Pompey, where they're going to end up uh, later in the series. Just about that scene in particular... Um... All the extras are local Italians, so they had no idea what the cast were saying or when they should be cheering or anything like that. I, I read that that was a bit of a point of difficulty to get them to react the right way at the right time. Um, you have uh, three main characters there, I suppose. You've got Pompey sitting there alone by himself as the sole console with an empty chair for Caesar. Uh, do you want to correct yeah. that? Well, Caesar wasn't his co-consul that year. Caesar couldn't be consul because he is a pro-consul. He's mm. a, a governor of a province out in Gaul. Um, and he had been consul back in 59. Things are in such a mess in Rome by 52 that Pompey has been appointed as the sole consul, mm. uh, which is, I guess, one way of dealing with not having to, to have two people uh, veto each other all the time. Although Pompey does use it here. He uses it to to veto what the Senate is suggesting. That also is the Senate is complicated. They're basically an advisory body. So in a way, they sort of have no power, but they have heaps of authority. Pompey doesn't really need to use his veto to deal with this. Yeah. That uh, seems to be much more like a US political system uh, invasion there. <laughs> Well, but there was this kind of conflict going on over whether Caesar should had you know committed crimes while he was uh, away as as governor, and uh, should he be deprived of his army? Should he be and if he gets deprived of his proconsulship, then he is liable to be prosecuted. Mm. This is what was going on. This was the contest that was going on, and people like Cato really wanted that to happen. Well, um, it's a, a great performance of Cato there by um, Carl Johnson playing Cato the Younger. And he stands up and really rips into Caesar's performance and as to why the Senate should denounce him. Uh, seems to have the majority of the Senate sitting over his side agreeing with him quite loudly in Italian. Uh, and he's very distinctive uh, standing out there amongst lots of senators wearing red and white and he's just there wearing black. And I then looked that up and was quite surprised as to that probably being accurate. So did you want to talk about that? What do we know about Cato the Younger and his fashion sense? <laughs> well, this comes from Plutarch's biography, um, which is written about 150 years later. But, you know, this is where we get a lot of our information about Roman individuals from Plutarch. Um, uh, he tells us, in general, Cato esteemed the customs and manners of men at a time so corrupt and a reformation in them so necessary that he thought it requisite in many things to go contrary to the ordinary way of the world. This is an older translation, you can tell in a moment. <laughs> Seeing the lightest and gayest purple was then most in fashion. He would always wear that which was the nearest black. 
so closest to black. And he would often go out of doors after his morning meal without either shoes or tunic. Not that he sought vainglory from such novelties, but he would accustom himself to be ashamed only of what deserved shame and to despise all other sorts of disgrace. So he sounds like a bit of a rebel there. Well, Cato was a, a Stoic um, he, and who adhered very firmly to Stoicism. Mm. And he was known as somebody who was extremely conservative and, and really did believe that Rome had gone astray. Mm. Uh, and part of this is in their kind of moral depravity. He's a real hardliner, and we're going to see the outcome of that. Um, mm. So he is sort of at the most conservative end and um, certainly Caesar's greatest enemy at this point. It's also a bit of a, um, a mourning the Roman Republic kind of thing, I suppose, if you want to look at it that way yeah. as well. Black is a, the colour of um, of mourning at this point too, so that's not always the case. Mm. But um, So when we see Pompey in a black toga, that's to indicate his mourning his wife. So, yeah, absolutely, that's symbolic in Cato that he, he feels sombre about the way the world is going and that's reflected in his clothing. Mm. We also get a, a kind of low-key introduction to Cicero, very mm. kind of restrained performance from David Bamber, who you kind of know you're going to have to keep your eye on later on in the series. But, yeah, I liked it. Having a foot in both camps, which we'll see Cicero continues to do. Yes. So eventually, the real life Cicero aligned himself with the side that is that Cato is on, but it takes him a long time to get there, and he really is trying to make a middle way between these camps. He doesn't want it to come to conflict, mm. so he's trying to be a mediator, and we saw that here. And I think the choice of David Bamber was so good for Cicero because, um, Matt, you're probably too young, but at that point in 2005, he was most famous for a decade earlier being the odious Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice, the TV series, who, again, was a kind of a very... Um, unctuous character who wanted to please who's who's very sort of you know see, knows his position in life and is trying to trying too hard as it were and i think that's meant to reflect a little bit in the portrayal of cicero here are we children that let the consul speak thank you cicero i do not however if i might say a few words before you continue when confronted by a hungry wolf, it is unwise to goad the beast as Cato would have us do. But it is equally unwise to imagine the snarling animal a friend and offer your hand as Pompey does. Perhaps you would have us climb a tree. <laughs> so now we get to the theatre show where Pompey's watching a, a show on stage and I'm going to hold my laptop up to you so you can see... Can you see the Temple of Vesta? Oh, yeah, I guess so. So there is a Tholos temple in the background. I don't know whether that is meant to be Pompey's theatre then because there's a round temple of Venus at the top of it. Oh, okay. Anything about the performance on stage? I remember a, a big dildo and a box. and yeah. <laughs> They were wearing masks, weren't they, or very stylized makeup. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Roman comedy could be very broad if we think of something like Plautus, but I think this was actually meant to be something like mime, which mm. isn't the same as what we mean by mime. It was, And it was much broader comedy, um, and you're more likely to have a woman on stage. Um, and I think that it is seen as something that is uh, quite bawdy and therefore not appropriate for respectable women, which is kind of mm. part of the message we get from that scene, because... Uh, Pompey is there and Scipio and Cato bring along a potential new wife. This is Cornelia. Pompey can't be single one. Mm. Yeah, Cornelia. And she is a respectable woman. So she says, my presence is not appropriate. There's a lewd woman on stage. Yeah. And I was wondering that when they showed up with her, I've gone, hey, hey, wait a minute. She shouldn't be there. And she pointed it out herself. So. <laughs> she, she did. And I, I think that, ironically, this might be a, a reference to stories that were associated with Cato. Mm. So not a respectable woman, but a respectable man. Um, and the story is, uh, and it comes from several ancient sources, that he turned up at the theatre and it was during a festival called the Floralia, um, where they tended to have performances that were a bit more lewd because it's a festival of fertility. 
Um, and the actresses tended to be on stage naked. And Cato kind of absented himself because he thought that his presence would make them have to dampen it down. Mm. So he knows that he's seen as a prude and he doesn't want to inhibit the performance. So there's an interesting kind of a double going on there. Cato's not saying this must never happen, but he's saying it's not appropriate for me to be here as somebody who with very high morals. Yes, yes. Uh he, he was parodied for that, and, and some said that he just turned up so that he could leave and make a show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I think they've transferred that story or a version of that story onto um, Cornelia here. Uh, what it shows us, of course, is that she is an appropriate, respectable wife for Pompey. So part uh, of what plays yeah, out yeah. in this episode is will it be her or will Atia manage to manipulate her own daughter into that role? Mm, mm. Well, at this point, uh, Cato tries to win Pompey over and turn him against Caesar. Uh, Pompey says to Cato that he won't betray a friend, but later on he decides to send his conveniently branded slave over to Gaul to come up with a plot and damage Caesar's reputation. And at this point, we get some men breaking in, sneaking in somehow while they're painted bright blue and stealing the eagle from the Roman camp. And that is meant to be all related. So Pompey sends his slave who recruits those barbarians who goes and steals the standard but there's like no time in between that. So I didn't I didn't kind of associate those two scenes as being part of the same plot. I thought that, you know, the barbarians are doing their own thing, Pompey's doing his own thing. No travel time. And that's a big problem with this episode. It seems that, you know, Gaul is just outside the Roman walls. Yeah, Caesar was supposed to have travelled from Rome to the very southern part of Gaul in seven days, and that was supposed to be amazing, according to Plutarch. Mm. So it takes at least that, and I suspect more. So, yeah, you could, it, it's not something that struck me, but I think you, you're right now you mention it. It does seem a bit uh, kind of a bit off. Um, and... I have to say, I, maybe I was watching this a bit late uh, and I'm not the brightest person at putting narrative together, but it took me until the end of the episode to realise that Pompey was behind it all. Mm. Mm. And, you know, I had to ask, ask my significant other, do you think that's what happened? And he said, <laughs> of course, that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> now we get a um, a better introduction, I think, to the characters of Mark Antony and Brutus. Uh, and I should say that they are played by... The um, very capable James Purefoy playing Mark Antony, he's great. And uh, Tobias Menzies, also quite great playing Brutus. Uh, Tobias Menzies, I recognise later as being from, uh, what's that um, time-travelling bonking television show set in Scotland? Do you know what the one I'm talking oh, about? Is it? I haven't seen it. It's, um, uh, but I've got the book. <laughs> you got the book, but <laughs> <laughs> It's not Highlander. What's it called? What's it called? <laughs> no, it uh, oh, God. People are going to be shouting at us. Wait, wait, wait. Um, I'm, I'm, Tobias, I'm, find out. Uh, okay. Outlander. There we great. go. Listening to people. No, there we go. Outlander. Yes. <laughs> I, I, baddie in that. He looks like he could be a baddie in it. He is. But I haven't I, seen it. I watched maybe the first couple of seasons of it. I, 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 I typed in Scotland TV series time travel. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> it found it. Thank you, Google. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, he, he's in Outlander. Uh, he's also in um, a show called The Terror. Have you come across that? I think yeah, I told yeah. you it's really good and you should watch it. <laughs> you put me onto it. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, um, The Terror was set in the Arctic, uh, a couple of stuck ships there, and um, he was in that, as was the guy who plays Caesar. They're both brilliant in it, mm. but then... You know, is there anything that Kieran Hines is in where he isn't brilliant, uh, who plays Caesar here? So, yeah, I think they're both very well cast as well. Anthony is perhaps a little bit more louche even than I'd imagine, you know, that he's he's very sort of very pleased with himself, isn't he, Anthony, in this version? He's um, he's just kind of lounging around a lot. Yes. He uh, treats people in a very offhand manner. I think that might be why he has that, that very um, colloquial way of talking that you mentioned, which seems 
sort of inappropriate for somebody very elite. Yeah, yeah. Is a very elite family. But we should um, we should address but, his question. He comes in and says, Brutus, me old cock, what are you doing here? What is Brutus doing there? He shouldn't be there, uh, should he? <laughs> <laughs> no, he's... Um, Antony turned up in Gaul towards the end of the Gallic War, so it's okay for him to be there. Mm. Brutus, yeah, we've got no indication that he was in Gaul. That seems to be... And maybe this is a... I guess I hadn't really thought about it, but maybe this is actually a recognition that... He wasn't there. He had in... no business being in that scene. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously he's there for dramatic reasons again, because mm. we want to have a, com- a conversation between Antony and Brutus. I think I'm writing saying that anybody watching this probably knows that Brutus is going to be instrumental in what's happening later. Antony is too, of course. But we all know that Brutus is famously going to do something terrible. Yes. Uh, well, I consider it terrible towards the end <laughs> of... Uh, Caesar's life. The first season. That's all I'll say. So um, <laughs> Octavian is taken prisoner. Mark Antony delegates Lucius Varinus to go and recover the standard because he's a soldier who has a brain, I believe is the way that he put it. Yeah. Can I just pause here? For those of you listening, Matt has written a f- some notes about this. Don't, and he's you're, clearly you're... got his mind. <laughs> he's got his mind in Emperors of Rome as well because he's written Lucius Verus. <laughs> I have, yeah. <laughs> he said Varenus, he got it right. Oh, thanks. So, so you, so you, you are uh, ruin, ruining my production magic there by pointing out a mistake that didn't need to be pointed out because I covered it quite well. <laughs> you did, but I just thought it was cute. Okay. Like you, you've gone for a second century emperor <laughs> in a Republican narrative. Oh, look, I just slipped in a, a, a mental typo there while I was doing my notes, but I covered for it. And anyway, so we will ignore that train wreck and keep going. I I like how Mark Antony asked for a talent, a bag of gold, and kind of weighed it up to make sure that he kept most of it for himself. I think he gave uh, Lucius Varinus like a quarter of it, he said. Here's a quarter of a talent. And he kind of got, no, that's still a bit too much. I'm going to keep a bit more, clearly for himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he's, he's obviously being portrayed as a grasping character here. The fact that he can just hold it in his hand and know how much is there, mm, mm. you know, he's somebody who's in it for himself i'm not sure anthony is going to come out of this series well yes from this this beginning <laughs> really um, yeah. I, as, as we've mentioned that brutus shouldn't be there then i think we should mention that octavian definitely shouldn't be there too i, I said yeah. that he's only an 11 year old at this point so maybe that covered it but there's nothing in our knowledge of octavian's early life to say that he was sent to gaul no so that was purely for the purpose of getting him into caesar's orbit and yeah. getting him into danger well, yeah, fair enough uh, for, for narrative convenience. So uh, Varinus crucifies some Gauls. I assume, you know, somebody from the Aquitani and somebody from the Adui and the nearby tribes. Look at Matt name dropping the references that he knows quite well now. Uh, yes. <laughs> Let's not point <laughs> out the things that he gets right. <laughs> Let's point out that he got something wrong in his script but still managed to cover it. That struck me as accurate, and you've said that you think that that sort of thing would have gone ahead uh, as a good way to find out about... Yeah, Well, certainly punishing, physically punishing prisoners of war would Mm. not have been something frowned upon. And, yeah, I I think that that's something maybe that they're to be commended for, that they're uh, they're not kind of afraid to show us our, our main character acting in this way so you'd have to make him very unrealistic to be somebody who meets our expectations of a hero i suppose and often that's where we get inaccuracies because we're not prepared to look at these hard parts of history um so i'm not saying that that precisely would have happened but it doesn't seem out of character for a roman soldier Mm -hmm. and Uh, he learns very quickly because crucifixion is a horrible thing. Actually, one thing I would say about the crucifixion is that they seem to be knocking nails into their hands, didn't they? Am I yeah, they were. About that? No, they definitely were. Yeah, they were full on yeah, going, going Christ on those guys. They just tie them up, mm. um, apparently, because I think once you start putting nails in people, you're just likely to kill them more quickly. Yeah, it's and over it, very it quickly. That they were tied up to mm. anyway it's it's a horrible conversation so maybe we'll leave it there um so uh, we've got pulo in a box who's p- praying to forculus a minor roman god of doors appropriate um yeah to please let him out <laughs> so and that seems yeah. to have worked forculus heard, heard. uh so he's going yeah. with varinus to recover the beagle 
Four cures. If you be the right god for the business here, I call on you to help me. If you would open this door, then I would kill for you a fine white lamb, or, or failing that, if I couldn't get a good one at a decent price, then six pigeons. This focus I vow to you. Legionary Titus Pulo, stand up. And at this point, um, we've got a scene back in Rome with Brutus and Pompey. Uh, essentially, Brutus, again, getting back to Rome very quickly, like no time has even passed, uh, is now at a party. Pompey kind of grills him for a bit of information about Caesar. I did like that uh, Brutus kind of casually calls Pompey very lower class. Uh, he could, so Pompey's father was yeah. a new man, so you could kind of get away with it, but, you know. I think we've made this clear, but just for anyone who hasn't heard that term before, it, it means that nobody in Pompey's family has been a magistrate before, specifically a consul. So Pompey has kind of risen on his own merits, mm. but that is sort of looked down on in a way. Mm. Um, Cicero, by the way, and it'd be interesting to see how they develop Cicero because Cicero was also a new man. He had been consul in 63 and nobody in his family had had anything close to that position before. But Cicero made a virtue of that. Nevertheless, there's there's a bit of negotiation going on with that. You know, Brutus comes from a very highborn family, so he might well have had this attitude. As I say, what I have more of a problem with is um, Artia and Octavian looking down on him because the Octavian family, Octavius family, are not in a better position. Mm -hmm. Anyway, now we come to quite a, an amazing scene. <laughs> okay, so, so Artia is uh, praying for the safety of Octavian. Uh, by having a bull sacrificed over the top of her, off you go, Rhiannon. I've got, I've got no idea what to say about this scene. I honestly don't. Why is probably a good place to start. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought this was particularly hilarious, um, and I think I know where they've taken it from. In, there is, there is a source that tells us something like this. So she is really? praying to the Great Mother. And that's the goddess Cybele, who's a goddess who's come from the east. And there are all kinds of, to the Romans and to us, weird rituals involved with them. Like, for example, the followers, male followers of Cybele were supposed to have castrated themselves. Oh, is this the Magna um, Mater? Is that that? Yeah, the Great Mother. So it's the same goddess. And some similar kind of scene is reported by a, a, a writer called Prudentius, who's from the 4th century CE, so a lot later. Mm. And he's a Christian writer, an anti-pagan writer. So he's saying that uh, one of Cybele's priests undergoes a ceremony like this, where he stands underneath some planks of wood and the blood of the, the sacrificed bull um, pours onto him. So, and that's our earliest and only, to my knowledge, source of this. So it exists kind of, but it's in a very hostile source. Mm. And there's no indication that the bull sacrifice, which we, we know of a, a particular kind of bull sacrifice associated with this cult. Uh, but I think our earliest sources for that are the second century CE. So a couple of hundred years after this. And I know that I'm picking away of this and talking about anachronisms and it's not what concerns primarily concerns the makers of this series but it is again drawing Artia in a particular vein that she's prepared to strip off for this and of course it gives us that titillation as viewers of this crazy scene yeah <laughs> she's know. just fully <laughs> slathered in what I assume is going to be fake blood but I'd love to get Polly Walker on and kind of ask her what <laughs> what did you think when you read this scene <laughs> yeah yeah it's uh, I, I don't know I mean, yeah. I, I, in in the def in the defense and maybe contrary to what i've already been saying they're clearly trying to draw artia as an extreme character yeah and i think that works yeah all right that's the way they've decided to portray her mm. and that scene i mean we've got her kind of framing the episode haven't we we've got her having sex at the beginning of the episode and then and undergoing this weird ceremony towards the end of the episode mm. so you know we don't forget that she is uh, a very uninhibited character mm -hmm. so now we get a um, a bit of an accelerated storyline which i've subtitled pompey wants a wife uh so atia plays matchmaker and has her daughter octavia divorce glabius um put on some arsenic makeup which i looked up and didn't seem to be a thing in rome yeah yeah and makeup is also uh something that is uh talked about as certainly heavy makeup 
not seen as as suitable for uh, a high-born woman so yeah um, yeah and uh, this is this is kind of horrible this matchmaking did go on and Artia again apart from being portrayed as sexually liberated she's also very much the manipulator character mm -hmm. which does fit in with that soap opera bitch type um, <laughs> and that is a term uh, and, and, <laughs> <laughs> well actually if apparently that type of character comes from the way Livia is portrayed in I, Claudius. So it all goes around in a circle. Mm. So she's trying to manipulate the situation so that her daughter marries uh, the kind of co-most important person in Rome at this time, uh, along with Caesar. Pompey is a real power player. She obviously doesn't know that Pompey is playing against Caesar at this point. Yes. So she, she kind of loses this fight doesn't she she doesn't read the situation properly she doesn't know what's going on in the background um and she yeah she kind of sacrifices her daughter on that altar because mm. she also has octavia have sex with him before they're married and then pompey is gonna go marry someone else yes so he he marries uh cornelia who was somebody else's daughter who was recently widowed she's scipio's daughter scipio's daughter that's it so she marries pompey instead and that's kind of done later on as a kind of reveal look veil off and oh shock horror it's not octavia so yes uh, that wraps up that plot line and the other one that we've got coming is uh verena Sampullo recover the eagle and rescue octavian which uh they didn't expect to do and they didn't plan to do so double success i suppose and they ride back into the Roman camp with Octavian on the back of a horse who surprises his uncle slash impresses his uncle uh, by being there on a white horse holding the eagle, essentially. So It's his great uncle, just to read. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> and they do say that in the show. They make a, they make yeah, a point. They do, they make that right, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It is interesting here, and I like this about it, that Octavian is young, Mm. But he's read the situation. Uh, it would have actually played into Caesar's plan not to find the eagle, for which he would then, I think it is, uh, then blame Pompey. Yes. And be able to have open conflict with Pompey. Yes. So he says that Caesar wouldn't have really cared about or think it realistic that the eagle be recovered. And that doesn't ring entirely true when you think about how important standards are to the Roman armies. But it's so significant as part of the kind of pride of the legion and, you know, its symbolic importance can't be overrated. Yes. So, yeah, that doesn't ring true for me. And to be honest, if if Caesar wants to pick a fight with Pompey, so many other ways he could do that. Yes. It's yeah. Not that difficult. But having said that, uh, it was quite impressive that Octavian had it all figured out, including all the subtext uh, and explained it all. And I still didn't understand about 50% of what he was saying, but I nodded going, hmm, that's convincing. <laughs> so, so. Yeah, I, I think he's very much in some ways his mother's son, isn't he? Because, mm. uh, and even even more successful than her, because Artia is sort of lost at this point. She's lost this, at least this skirmish um, over Octavia, whereas Octavian, mm. and it rings true with what's going to be his future, he understands what's going on. He understands how people will play each other. Yes. So he's going to be a very good politician. Ultimately, we were meant to be incredibly impressed by how much Octavian has figured out. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and Caesar is impressed. Um, and I guess the stars of Varinus and Pullo rise as a result of coming back in with Octavian at this point. Caesar doesn't want to strike the first blow against an old friend. So he wishes to lure Pompey into attacking him first. Pompey will only do this if he believes Caesar is weak. No. They're as good as brothers, those two. When Julia died, the last true bond between them was cut. Caesar has taken the love of the common people from Pompey, and that was his most prized possession. A battle is inevitable. Overall, Overall I liked it. Uh, I, look, I, I like the episode. I think it rushed a couple of things. Um, I think it could have done with being like a movie length and especially giving those I, I don't want to see scenes of people on horses for ages, ages or traveling or anything like that we did get some of that with octavian but it needed a bit of room to breathe i think it went through quite a lot in a short amount of time brilliantly cast i love the cast of this show uh it's mm. really done well but yeah i liked it uh i think it's everything that i could have 
wanted shown on the screen for a Rome television series. I think you see a lot of the scale that you need to, quite a lot of the subtext to make it seem quite real. And it doesn't pull its punches, which in some ways it goes a bit too far, but in other ways are probably really quite realistic with its brutality and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, I liked it. I think that's absolutely right. And my main... I mean, apart from the issues I have over the representation of women, mm. I just want to see more of Caesar. I think he's so great. So I'm looking forward to seeing more of him as we go through. To wrap up, I asked um, people for questions, and we did get a couple of listener questions. Uh, if you have any questions for episode two, so if you want to watch that and then send us a couple of thoughts, you can send them to emperorspodcast at gmail.com. So uh, to the first question, this is from Dave Walter, a mostly retired acarologist. And I looked that up and that's mites and ticks and those sort of things. So I don't know what mostly retired means. Maybe he's just got a very full shed at the back of the garden. So he says, salve from the hinterlands of the Sunshine Coast. I'm an avid and appreciative listener to Emperors of Rome after discovering it a couple of months ago. I've only made it through the first 100 episodes. Well, he's got a fair bit to go, uh, but I dread coming to the end. So a new occasional series on HBO Rome sounds like a great idea. Uh, that's what we thought too, just right for the quarantine age. Um, fortuitously, well, actually a direct result of listening to your podcasts. I bought the DVD set of Rome a few months ago. I've only watched the first episode, though, and I do have a question. You'll probably get this from several people. What was with that blue hoon in the raid on the eagle? So, firstly, I don't think that the people who raided the eagle needed to be blue. I wonder how they snuck into the camp, painted blue, and managed to get that far. There was no context for them being blue. No, it's just like suddenly, why is the Blue Man group attacking Caesar's camp? <laughs> so there's a little bit of context for this, but not enough to give it a pass, I don't think. Over to you, Rhiannon. Uh, well, Blue Spaniards, I don't know of any evidence for, but I assume it's they've taken it from Caesar saying that the Britons, so the other end of the of Europe, uh, covering cover themselves with blue. Woad, which probably means woad. The Latin word is witrum, which also means glass, confusingly. Mm. Uh, it's again in, this is this is the episode for Gallic War Book 5. Yeah. In Gallic War Book 5, he describes the Britons and in Chapter 14 says, all the Britons indeed dye themselves with woad, if that's how we translate it, which produces a blue colour and makes their appearance in battle more terrible. So you see there, Caesar is saying they do it to stand out in that sort of brave hearty way to mm. look really scary. Not which is not around. what you want when you're doing a, a night raid, is it? Mm, mm. You want to be under the covers. They'd be covering themselves with mud or something to darken their skin, surely. Yeah, yeah. It was simply so at the end of the episode, Varinus could go, hey, look blue, this is clearly we're on the right track. That's it. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You've seen the narrative connection there. Mm, so mm. Mm, we can't give it a pass on that. You're right. No. Uh, thanks for the question, Good Dave. Question. Yes. Uh, this next one's from Andrew McDonald. Hey, guys, absolutely love the idea that you're producing a podcast on HBO's Rome. Hooray. Uh, a couple of questions for your consideration and possible discussion. Uh, can you please outline in more detail the family history of Atia, Octavian, and Octavia, with specific reference to the missing father, Gaius Octavius? So how, how does that family tree kind of work? Uh, Caesar's great uncle is the great uncle of this family. So he's in yeah. there as well, I guess. So Caesar's sister, Julia, a lot of Julias, so keep up, mm. um, had uh, a daughter who is Atia. So Atia, the uh, mother of Octavian, Atia, played by Polly Walker, is Caesar's niece. She is married to a man called Gaius Octavius, the man who I've mentioned was a new man. He mm. was actually a very successful politician, but he didn't come from a family which had had successful politicians. Uh, she has two children with him, Octavian and Octavia, both named after their father, which would be normal. Um, but he had died when Octavian was about four. And I think Octavia is meant to be, she's about six years older than Octavian, six or seven years older. Mm. So she would have been, what, around 10 or 11 when her father died. So that's why he's not there. Um, and there's not no mention of him that I can remember in that episode. Um, he had died by that point. Now, Atia remarried, but I don't think we know exactly when. 
she doesn't seem to be married in this episode. So I don't know whether I can't remember whether that's coming up later or they've just decided to leave the stepfather out. Mm, mm. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it to be an important um, plot point if they did bring him in unless he comes in and she gets rid of him at something like that. And I can't remember the show well enough to say whether that happens or not. Uh, the other thing he asks is uh, how accurate was the, the bull sacrificing scene, which we've kind of gone into. Um, yeah. Yeah, but he does give it the word tarabolium, which is the correct technical term. I, I'm glad you read that out and I didn't. So. <laughs> so well done, Andrew. I should give you a point there for that, which I wasn't. Uh, awarding you previously so thanks for that question yeah if you have any questions about episode two and we'll be recording on that at some point in the future uh, send them through to emperorspodcast at gmail.com and we will consider your emails thank you for joining me on the first episode of raising standards rhiannon you're welcome matt i enjoyed it let's see if we can make it to episode 10 it is 10 episodes <laughs> isn't it <laughs> no it's 12 there you go. 12. 12 oh, in the okay. first series, 10 in the second series. You've been listening to the first episode of Raising Standards, a rewatch podcast of HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, please leave a rating on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify and subscribe to our other history podcasts, Emperors of Rome and When in Rome. You can follow us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I'm at Nightlight Guy and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. I'm Matt Smith, you've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.